Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your rebellious friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Well, my beloved Junto, after this episode, we only have one more to go before our spectacular season finale on the 4th of July. And trust me when I say, dear listener... It promises to be a historic event. Now, there's a great deal of exciting news to be had regarding Season 2 and the future of the show, but I should leave you waiting with anticipation, lest I spoil any of the exciting gossip to come. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today... It's about power, it's about politics, and it's about rebellion. Now, His Majesty, King George III, would declare all of the American colonies to be an open rebellion in August of 1775, which broaches the question, my beloved Junto, at what point does a rebellion become a revolution? John Adams would say that the American Revolution began in the hearts and minds of its citizens. But all the same, this exercise of thought broaches the question, what are revolutions made of? To help facilitate this conversation, joining us today is a very special member of our junto, who I believe is walking through the door just this moment. Good afternoon, sir. Please sit down. Now to introduce him. Mark Summers is the public historian for the Jamestown Rediscovery Archaeology Project. As a historian on the archaeology team, Mark not only examines documents for context, but writes publications, exhibition scripts, and walking tours about historical and archaeological topics. He regularly lectures about Jamestown to the public and has appeared on many media sites, including Washington Post, Associated Press, National Geographic, and PBS. He received an MA in History from Virginia Tech and a BA in History from the University of Mississippi. Well, Mr. Summers, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Be Frank. Oh, well, it's nice to be here, Dr. Franklin. I was minding my own business and Somehow I was abducted, and here I am in the 18th century, so it's sort of good to be here. Well, just want to make sure for the record, I have a couple questions to make sure I'm in the right place. So, in the year 1776, who is the king of Austria? Well, that would be Joseph II. And who is the king of Prussia? Friedrich Wilhelm III. And who is the king of England? Well, that's a simple one. The tyrant, King George III. Very good. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm 99% positive you are indeed the real Ben Franklin. Okay, continue. (laughs) Excellent. Then we can proceed. 
Now, Mr. Summers, we are here today to talk about rebellion and ruin. Now, I suspect America might think itself unique for having a successful revolution against Great Britain. But over the course of British history, there have been a great many provinces and factions who have endeavored to rebel against the powers that be. So let's begin by talking about just that, those failed rebellions that perhaps paved the way for our own successful revolution. Well, I've got one for you. Uh, one of the things that I talk a lot about in my profession as an historian of Virginia and the British Empire is a thing called Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Your audience uh, may have heard of Bacon's Rebellion, but it is kind of a complicated story. It's really a case of uh, mistaken identity uh, over some livestock or some hogs that led to a spark which burns down a house of cards of a Virginia aristocracy that came very close to being overthrown in just a year and a half. Now, before we burn down that house of cards, let's build it up. Let's talk a little bit about America's beginnings. Not just the pieces that we might remember, Pocahontas, John Smith, uh, the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock. Can you talk about the beginnings of Jamestown, 1607 to 1676? Well, this is something even your own, your own colleague John Adams references in your time period. The idea that Virginia, the oldest successful English colony in North America, was not established by Parliament. British Parliament wasn't established necessarily by the Crown, with permission from the Crown, but was established by a company, a joint stock company, we might say today a corporation, called the Virginia Company of London, and private investors. Now, if you think back to your own history, generations ago, the idea of there is no British Empire, there is no real Great Britain yet, England is still a separate country from from Wales, from Scotland, the Irish question is blowing up. England's a second-rate European power. Uh, Spain and Portugal are, are getting rich with gold and silver every single year, and the English have tried almost nine times or so to start a colony, and they all failed. So the English will turn to business, will turn to investors, because they have a brand-new king who's Scottish, James I, who doesn't want to pay for a colony that he thinks will be a failure. So they're going to turn to private business. The idea is you protect the king and the charter from anything that could go wrong. And the company takes the risk and sends the colonists across the ocean to look for gold and silver. The king, if you're successful, gets 20% of the money. The king is behind the scenes through what's called the Virginia Council. But actually the private company takes all the political risks. Um, but the settlers themselves are mostly either poor laborers or they are uh, younger sons of gentlemen, people who inherit neither money, but they do inherit an attitude. These are the people who make up the original 104 men and boys across the ocean. But what they're going to find in Virginia after a three and a half month journey, after following orders that told them that they were supposed to head up from the Chesapeake Bay to avoid detection from the Spanish, find high ground to build a fort, uh, locate themselves next to a deep river channel, but also pick a place to live where there were no naturals, no Native American peoples. Well, what they found was three of the four were successful. They definitely found a deep river and a big hill, and they were hiding from the Spanish. But the land that they mean to occupy, they didn't see any Native Americans, any naturals as they called them. But it was hunting land for our local tribe. 
So just to get to the chase here, uh, what Jamestown represents is a almost failed colony multiple times. Uh, the first five years of Jamestown, they don't make any money. The death rate is atrocious, 80% a year. Uh, they're dying of things like salt poisoning, and, and they're dying because they have bad drinking water. They have poor leadership. There's no gold and silver and a bad relationship with the Native American people. That's the real story of the first few years of the English colony in Virginia. So what ultimately saves Jamestown? Tobacco. Now you think even in your era, Dr. Franklin, right? Virginia's known for tobacco. You've probably met such Virginians if you remember back to the Continental Congress. You know, those grandees with their coach and sixes and fine clothing. Well, many of these families didn't start out quite so noble. So it's a long story, but eventually, uh, if we were to talk about the first few chapters of the Virginia book, the early days of Jamestown, which are much more famous of, of the disease and the dying, will ultimately yield to a period where the English establish a tobacco crop through John Rolfe, will establish a system of uh, representative government in 1619 with the first General Assembly, a precedent for your own era. Uh, they will establish at least what they think is peace with the local Powhatan native people, at least with the marriage of Rolfe and Pocahontas for a few years, and also rely on indentured servitude labor, but of course, that side of Virginia you've spoken out against, increasingly slave labor from Africa. But from the English aristocratic point of view, what they've established in Virginia is a way to make money, an agricultural system, and a very distinct class system uh, with a very elite top uh, and a lot of people at the bottom. So here we are, 70 years into this Jamestown experiment. England has changed gone through its own bloody civil war, an experiment in democracy, and the restoration of the monarchy. Now, what was Virginia doing all the while? And what does it look like by 1676? What is it striving towards? And what are the events that inevitably lead to Bacon's rebellion? Well, this is the middle period between your own era and the, and the founding era of John Smith, you know, the Pocahontas story. You're in this middle period, and it's affected by the English Civil Wars. Uh, what you have is you have a period where Virginia was very loyal to the crown, very different from your day. Virginia is extremely loyal to the crown, some of the same families you might recognize. Loyalists to the crown during the English Civil Wars. The governor, Sir William Barclay, um, was a friend of the king, King Charles I, who will be beheaded. There's a period for nearly 10 years where Virginia is being run by pro-Cromwell governors, but but Governor Barclay runs sort of a shadow government in exile, promises to stay out of politics, but he's behind the scenes. What happens is Virginia starts to import a lot of royalist refugees. These are the names you're familiar with. Uh, you're familiar with their great-great-grandchildren, the Washingtons, the Lees, the Randolphs, the Carters. These families start acquiring wealth and land and status. They have a champion in Governor Barclay. He is famous not only for uh, being an aristocrat with manners and fine fashion and taste, a polymath. But he's also somebody who um, who's very good, at, he thought, of negotiating with the American Indian peoples, uh, winning the last major war versus the Powhatan. Um, and then he, again, is in exile for over 10 years. And then when the monarchy is restored in 1660 with Charles II, put it back in power. Virginia is now known as its nickname, the Old Dominion. It has a reputation, if anything, being stoogely loyal to the crown, very aristocratic. And now the governor wants to keep that power that he fears any kind of rebellion from the bottom would lead to, well, 
if you can kill a king, what's a governor, what's a planter? That's the situation on the eve of 1675. So enter the, um, the rebellious personas. Where, where do the fruits of this rebellion begin? Well, there's a couple factors. One is the governor has not shared power very effectively. He's distrustful not only of any potential rebellion, but of younger men, a new generation. Uh, Barclay's about 70 years old at this point. He's in his second term with this dozen-year break, uh, fearful of rebellion, distrustful of the young, and refuses to really hold an election. I mean, you have the same men in the Virginia Governor's Council and House of Burses as you've had for nearly a generation. So enter the figure of, of, of one Nathaniel Bacon, you know, somewhat of aristocratic background in London. One of those people, you, you were in London for several years. Uh, you've met the type of young men who uh, gamble away their father's fortunes, uh, are too quick to drink, too quick with the knife, uh, a certain type of, uh, uh, of gentleman. Well, this is who he is. And uh, he ends up in many ways a young man in his 20s in Virginia with a lot of silver in his pocket and manages to secure himself a position on the governor's council. But hold that thought. He has land to the west, the west at the time being where Richmond is today, the frontier at the time. He has not only a lot to lose if there's any war on the frontier, but he's also very ambitious in being shot out of power. He takes advantage of an opportunity brought about by that mistaken identity I said earlier. So uh, the northern neck of Virginia, the area of Virginia that, that's produced your colleagues, General Washington and, and others, at the time was a bit of a frontier along the Potomac. And what was happening at that early period is you had the uh, native population was being squeezed between the Virginians moving north and the Marylanders moving south. There's a people called the Doags. They're loosely related to the Lenapes, uh, the New Jersey, Delaware area. They had some difficulties with the Virginia planters, but these are mostly um, middling sorts. In any case, there was uh, the case of a, of a man whose own overseer was killed after a dispute over hogs. There's a lot of back and forth that went on there, but Thomas Matthew, the planter, said his overseer was killed. His dying words were, the Doag people killed me. Right. So to cut to the chase, the posse was rounded up. Uh, the ancestor of George Mason and George Washington were in this posse. They crossed the Potomac to attack the Doag people. They attacked a camp, killed some native people who turned out to actually be Susquehannocks, very infamous in your Pennsylvania history. Susquehannocks are a group of people you don't want to annoy, especially at that time. They retaliated. The entire winter of 1675, the Susquehannocks raided along the Virginia frontier Many people were killed, and among those who were killed were servants and enslaved people on the frontier farm of Nathaniel Bacon. So suddenly, Governor Barclay has a bit of a diplomacy issue. The peace that he's worked towards with the indigenous population is in crisis. How does Nathaniel Bacon react to this? More importantly, how does Nathaniel Bacon take advantage of this opportunity? That's a great point. How does one take advantage? Because it, on the one hand, I think he is personally affected. Uh, not so cynical to say that he doesn't feel anything at all. At the same time, he is also a very ambitious man. Governor Barclay has not only, if we're trying to play the cynical card, done a very good job of keeping the peace between the tribes and the Virginians, 
he's also profited from such trade. And so when the people of the frontier are being killed and they're calling out for justice, they're calling out for revenge, they're calling out for the government to do something out here in Jamestown. And by the way, the Jamestown now is a fine brick city. It's no longer the frontier fort of the earlier days. The establishment is at Jamestown. What happens? Governor Buckley responds by saying we're going to uh, build a series of forts along the fall line of Virginia. Of forts, fortifications. Fortifications that the frontier people do not want because in order to build fortifications, the governor has to raise taxes. They want a militia. They don't want taxes. They don't want forts. They want blood. Now, if you're going to form a militia, remember it's going to be illegal militia. Someone's going to lead this militia. There's a rally in the western part of Virginia. I mean western back then. I mean Charles City County. Not that far west of Williamsburg. But back then, remember, that was a frontier. There's a rally. Perhaps whiskey was passed around. You've been to political events. Much like your central Pennsylvania. <laughs> and people start chanting, who will lead us, who will lead us? Bacon, a bacon, a bacon, a bacon. Now, we don't know if anyone put those words into the crowd or not, but Nathaniel Bacon certainly did not refuse the sword. He decided to lead his army, whether the governor granted him permission or not, not or not, into that frontier to attack whatever Susquehannocks they could find. It was an illegal army. An independent militia. Not so different from the independent companies formed on the eve of the American Revolution. So when Governor Barclay gets wind of this, what's his response? Well, one analogy would be in your own time period, Dr. Franklin, is, you, you know, I think it's less like those militias from 1776 and much more like the Paxton boys from your state's history. Oh, We're yes. talking anger. So they might be legitimate anger, but there's blood. There are people with blood in their eyes. And, and so what happens is Barclay hears of this. He doesn't want this militia or this, I'm sorry, this frontier army without a commission, whatever you want to call them. It's a band of armed men from the frontier heading west. Well, they get word that one of the Susquehannock uh, camps is down on the North Carolina-Virginia border. There's an Okanichi tribe that doesn't want the Susquehannocks there. They cut a deal with the Okanichis to kill the Susquehanna band. They do. And then Nathaniel Bacon orders the Okanichi that helped him to be killed. So this is where what seemed to be reprisals against a tribe that was attacking the frontier, then turns into a vengeful band of men. This is where I reference Paxton boys. No, all of the American Indians are the same. And what happens is that army begins to empty jails. That army begins to... Any American Indian that's arrested or under Virginia protection is being dragged out. It's being killed, and including the remaining Powhatan people that had uh, protected status under the Virginia government. So this army turns into a mob, a mob who's intent on blood, and that all American Indians are the same. This is something that echoes to your own generation. I will write about the brutality of the Paxton Boy uprising and attacks, the universal concern of the neighboring white people on hearing of this event, and the lamentations of the younger Indians when they returned and saw the desolation cannot be well expressed. And so we see these parallels between my time in 1676, a desire to completely wipe a people out before there's ever opportunity for violence upon their side. That's correct. And now what you have is you have a governor who reacts by declaring, you know, Bacon an outlaw. But he, of course, is now forced to act because he, he's really done nothing to kind of 
get that release valve on the frontier other than raise taxes and start forts. So he decides to call for another election, a new house of Burgess for the first time in well over a decade. That's where it gets exciting because, of course, in, in June of 1676, well, Nathaniel Bacon still has a seat on the governor's council. Is he actually going to show up and, 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 and take his seat? And what ends up happening is he does show up. And then he's arrested by the governor. And then the governor Barclay feels like he has squashed the, the, the rebellion. So he, he actually forces Nathaniel Bacon to kneel in front of him. And he begs forgiveness. Grovels. And Barclay says three times, God forgive thee, I forgive thee, etc., etc. God forgive thee, I forgive thee. And feels like the situation is now under control. A true aristocrat, I have done my duty. He is merely just a, a brigand and an outlaw. Of course, then Bacon leaves. Barclay's not concerned. And then he comes back with armed men nearly uh, 30 days later at the end of the accession. Now, the attention is given to Barclay, who was basically asleep in his bed, and governor's quarters were near the uh, brick uh, Capitol building. But the point is, imagine the legislature looking outside their window and seeing maybe three to 400 armed men. Uh, perhaps bottles have been passed around. Guns are in the air. Nathaniel Bacon has a mob, has a, an armed banditti, and they are demanding to see the governor. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of this story. Governor Barclay is annoyed. He's in his 70s. He is not concerned about this rabble. So what he essentially does is he stands out in front of the Capitol building. Nathaniel Bacon has his hand on the sword and says, If I pull this sword, I'll have you shot. I'll have this entire government overthrown. Uh, but you will sign my commission. You will sign a commission giving me permission to have this army. And Governor Barclay opens up his uh, doublet, unbuttons his waistcoat, you would say today. And says, for God, fair mark, shoot. If other words, if you're going to shoot me, go ahead and shoot me. And Bacon doesn't pull the trigger. Bacon doesn't take the sword out. Bacon is afraid to commit an act of killing against the governor. And Barclay goes back to sleep. And then Bacon's men turn their guns on the other younger men who are not expecting to die soon. And they get the commission anyway. Now the cut to the chase Bacon's men run off with the commission they want. Governor Barclay hears that his lieutenants have signed this piece of paper, and then he again declares Bacon to be an outlaw. One final point for your next question. Because there's so much complexity here. Bacon's men go west. As soon as they hear that Barclay's declared them an outlaw again, he turns his army against the government and forgets for the moment about the American Indians, and that's where the true rebellion begins. It's uh, anger over taxes, anger over lots of things, lots of resentments, rich and poor alike. There's a lot of resentment. There's probably a lot of resentment of the frontier against the eastern establishment. Again, in your state, you see the same. But he also sees the opportunity because perhaps I can take this army against that aristocracy. Now, there's a lot more detail that we wouldn't have time for, but he does declare uh, a sort of rights of the people, a list of grievances, very similar, you could argue, to 1776, a list of grievances against the governor, and it declares the rights of the people. He's trying to get the popular support, and he rounds up a lot of popular support. He also gets some of the planters to side with him. Now, some are siding with him because they agree with him, some are afraid of his army. But what's happening is now they're going to take that army by September to Jamestown, and the loyalists of Governor Barclay are assuming that Governor Barclay will protect will protect them. 
and Bacon's men get closer and closer to Jamestown, start to besiege it, and take the wives and children of some of the loyalists and have them on the earthworks. So if you shoot at the earthworks, you shoot at your own family. And Governor Barclay decides to leave the scene with some of his officials, leaving Jamestown wide open for that army to ransack it. And Jamestown in September 1676 will be torched and burnt to the ground. The church, the capital, the storehouses, all torched. An angry army. And it's not just these middle class planters or new money people. We're talking Bacon offered freedom to indentured servants to enslaved Africans to join his army to everybody with the grievances burning down Jamestown. So if this is the climax of Bacon's rebellion, talk a little bit about the aftermath what becomes of Nathaniel Bacon? What becomes of Governor Barclay? These two figureheads on opposite sides of this drama. There's the anticlimax. Governor Barclay flees to the eastern shore of Virginia to await the arrival of uh, reinforcements and an English fleet. Word has reached England, this is blowing up. Uh, Nathaniel Bacon feels like, well, he's destroyed the government. The governor is in exile. He's, he's a nobody at this point, according to Bacon. He takes his army to try to pursue the remaining bands of whoever the former Powhatan were, including the Pamunkey tribe, who, who've actually quite brilliantly go into the swamps and, uh, and hide. And when Bacon's men try to find them, because he's got to keep his army fighting to keep his army from turning on him. In October of 16... 76, at the height of his power, he dies of dysentery. As far as Barclay goes, he gets the fleet he wants. He gets reinforcements. And now that he has naval superiority, he bombards the shoreline. His armies, three of them, essentially three bands, sort of mop up the uh, remaining Bacon rebels over a three, four-month period. He makes sure some people get pardons, who he thinks were misguided. Um, other people are re-enslaved or forced back to work their contracts if they're indentured servants. And uh, some of the people who are ringleaders will be hanged, personally, by Barclay. And he feels like he's done an excellent job. Only when the peace commissioners come from, from London, who were supposed to meet with Barclay, he realizes very quickly that they weren't interested in talking to him. They wanted to investigate all the things that blew up in Virginia. And Barclay goes back to London to kind of defend himself. As the commissioners said, actually both sides were at fault. And if anyone was actually hurt, it was the American Indian who was the most damaged by a long history of, 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 of false government in Virginia. So unfortunately for Barclay, it's anticlimactic too. He waits to see the king he's been loyal to his whole life. Loyal to his brother, loyal to his father. And he dies, not getting an audience with the king. So Bacon dies of dysentery in his 20s. Barclay dies, an old broken-hearted man, thinking he was loyal and his loyalty wasn't repaid. And it was actually the peace commissioners said actually the people who were most wrong were the American Indians and eventually things were put back together and some families who played both sides ended up very, very clean on the other side of this rebellion. And some of them became the families that are leading families in your day, Dr. Franklin. So what changes after Bacon's rebellion? How does that rebellion set the stage for the next chapter in Virginia's history? further solidifies the class system. I think you see the end of indentured servitude for Europeans, uh, the strengthening of slavery laws for those of African descent, the separation of two groups that were once very allied, the strengthening of slave laws 
and the increasing power of the planters on the one hand. Some of the so-called new money families become dominant families in the House of Burgess for the next five, six generations. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, a lesson was taught to Virginians that if you don't ultimately like your government, if you see that government is tyrannical, one could take up arms against that government. And therefore, it is interesting nearly 100 years later to see Patrick Henry doing some similar things to as uh, Nathaniel Bacon. But here's where I would caution people from making that connection too strongly. The thing about the revolution is of your day, Dr. Franklin, is you had those radical impulses, but you had a moderating influence. You had an enlightenment. You have people in your era that are uh, moderating the radical impulses, the extreme violent impulses, which existed in the 1770s as well. I think it's very important to think about what the Continental Congress did to actually control that rebellion, the establishment of the U.S. Constitution. These are things that did not come out of the 1670s. There was no enlightenment yet. There was rebellion, but rebellion without, in many ways, rebellion without philosophy led to anarchy and destruction. I think rebellion with a certain philosophy behind it of government led to a much more successful run 100 years later. Do you think that's what makes the distinction between rebellion and revolution? I believe so. In many ways, a rebellion is simply a failed revolution. A revolution is a successful rebellion. In your own day, you knew what you were signing. And if you had lost that war, what would have happened to you and your property and your status, Dr. Franklin? But at the same time, I think what Bacon's Rebellion is more like in your day is not the American Revolution. It's much more like things like Shays' Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion where rebellion was for the sake of rebellion. The anger is very real out in the frontier, but it wasn't, I think in many ways, the leadership did not have an outcome, did not have an end game. I think what makes uh, the American Revolution fascinating is it's unlike most that have ever occurred. Most end up failed. Most end up like France in bloodshed and violence and reprisals. I think having a philosophical framework of why you're doing what you're doing, having an organized rebellion based on principles of representative government, and taxation, old principles in English-American culture. But I don't see that in Bacon's Rebellion. What I see is that anger and that violence. I think of the Paxton Boys. I think of Shays Rebellion. I think of Whiskey Rebellion. That's what I think of. And I think the danger in my own time period in America is we, we look to your era for inspiration, but at the same time, we still have those impulses of anger and violence without thinking it through. So Bacon's Rebellion should be a cautionary tale. The last question, Mr. Summers, is for you. What is it about studying and teaching history that sets you on fire? Uh, in many cases, it's to recognize where we all come from. It's to see not the differences between ourselves and the past, but the similarities. We can have a conversation, you and I, across two or three hundred years, but we think the same. Because in many ways, people have the same impulses, the same desires, the same frustrations. Certainly technology and certainly industry and things change over time. Human rights hopefully keeps getting better. Medicine gets better. But the idea of people haven't changed much. And so we can learn from the past to understand our present. And I think um, so much of what's happened in the past keeps repeating in the present. And somewhere the impulses, the attitudes of human beings to me seems the same. So when you learn about the past, one learns about your present. 
Mr. Summers, thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Be Frank. I am, sir, anxious to get you back to your time. But before we do, what say you and I go out on the town? I'll show you some of my favorite haunts, and you and I can raise a little rebellion together. Well, I'm interested in your 18th century taverns, and I'd, uh, I know you have a few here in Philadelphia. Just a few. I know just the one to start. We'll go to City Tavern, and then from there, all the taverns in the city. Let's bid farewell to our junto, and we'll be off. Now, what lesson can we derive from today's installment? A rebellion is only as useful as what follows after. A rebellion for rebellion's sake is just wrath. But if something follows after that benefits the world, sets a precedent that society can be improved, well, in that, a little rebellion can truly be revolutionary. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.